And I have my Bible. Oh, there it is. I guess I need to have my Bible to turn into Acts chapter 8. So as we get there, um, I wanted to just start by saying that anytime that God uses a person or people to further his kingdom, we got to realize that what we help build, if we do anything for God, it won't stand up to the test of time unless God was the one that built the foundation under it. We oftentimes look at a house and we go, man, that, that thing's really stable, it's really sturdy. But without a foundation that most of us, if we look at a house, we don't see the foundation. It's underground. It's, it's an important part, and yet it's not in the seeable parts. It's not the siding. It's not the you know, studs. It's not the doorways, but it's, it's the foundation. It's what everything in the house is completely resting on. And so if it's not there, that thing over time will start to fall over, and it won't stand firmly. And so it's important that... You know, Jesus is the foundation for every work that he starts and, and every work that will stand the test of time. Now, the principles that he laid down by his teaching will always be true. And the way that he lived and the way that he died will always stand as an example because it, it happened. There's people that wrote down about it, people that believed that he was the Messiah and people that did not believe that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And so that testimony stands true. So the man that we saw God use last week in our text in Acts chapter 8, he was a man that not only did he have a fruitful ministry, but his fruitful ministry was built on something that wouldn't be shaken. He wasn't spending his time investing in building God's kingdom in his own way. He was actually went to the places that Jesus had already gone. Jesus had spoken into the lives of those in the region of Samaria, and when he left, when he went on to different towns, he would speak there as well. But because of the persecution, because of the things that Philip had experienced, he was, in a way, blown. He was driven to a different town. And when he got to the region of Samaria, he got to a people that the Jewish people would never go and talk to. He went to people that were, had quite a bit of prejudice. The Jewish people did not like the Samarians, the Samaritans. And we get that picture in the the story of the Good Samaritan on the road, um, along the road, uh, when Jesus speaks about a parable and he talks about how these different people came along and this man had been beaten to the point of he was almost dead on the side of the road and he was speaking, Jesus, to the Pharisees and he said, you know, it's like this Samaritan that came along and ministered, uh, or they came along and ministered to this person that had beaten up on the side of the road. And his point was that the, the Samaritan was justified because he was actually willing to get involved with this man. He wasn't worried about getting his hands dirty. He wasn't worried about not being able to minister because he had touched somebody that was, had, had ailments. He, he got involved. And so anytime that we do anything for God, if we will do it based on what Jesus has shown us how to do it and where he's already been at work, that's when there will be fruit. And Philip, in this last week in the text, had seen much fruit. Um, the man that we saw God use last week, Philip, had a fruitful ministry. He preached the gospel of Jesus to an area, to those people in Samaria, and when they heard it, they received it. And our text says in verse 6 of Acts chapter 8, um, it says that they, paid, they heeded what Philip spoke. They listened to his words. But the word heed is not like our word listen. Because there are many times when people say things to me, I hear them, but I don't listen. Heeding is listening and doing something about it. 
It means to kind of lean in, to play, pay close attention, and then to take the things that you've heard and put them into practice, to apply them to your own life. So then in verse 8, it shows us that as a result of taking heed, listening and then applying, as a result of that, to what Philip had taught, there was great joy in that city. But wherever there is increase that leads to the glory of God, there's always a foundation that's been laid by Jesus himself first. Because Jesus had already been there. Jesus had met those people. We looked at that last week in John 4 where basically what happened is when Jesus went to Samaria and he spoke with the woman at the well, she heard what he had to say. She was so excited she went into Samaria. She spoke to the people of the town and they, because of her testimony, came back to the well where Jesus was. They spoke to him and their testimony at the end of the story was to the woman, we don't believe in Jesus because of what you've said anymore. We believe in Jesus because we've met him personally. And so Philip, in this same manner, is showing back up to the city and he's, he's not just telling them, hey, just believe the gospel because I said so. He's telling them, believe in this Savior because I said so, but go and meet him yourself. Come and see what God has done. Realize that it was for you, not just me. It's for you as well. Romans chapter 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so because of that, the good news is for every person that ever existed. Whether they're from Samaria, whether they're from Pilate Nob, whether they're from Annapolis, whether they're from Sabula, wherever the town is, the gospel is for every person. And so our lives, like Philip, should be those that proclaim the truth of the gospel. Not just saying, hey, here's an idea that I trust in and it's made my life better, but Jesus has saved me from my sins. Why don't you try it out yourself? Why don't you speak to him about it and say, hey, Lord, you know, can you forgive my sins too? And as we introduce people to Jesus, not just a doctrine, not just a teaching, not just a religion or a church, as we introduce people to Jesus, that's when they will experience him and they will have the joy that you and I, hopefully, that we experience. And that's my heart's desire, that, that all of the people that we know and love in this community, in the valley, would receive the love of Jesus Christ, the freedom from sin, salvation, peace with God that leads to peace with others. And that as they experience that, that they would go and tell others, and that just like the woman in the well, when she went to Samaria, that they would go out away from the well, away from church and say, hey, come and see, come and meet Jesus. And as they do that, they'll receive joy. But how do we experience joy? I thought about this week because there's a lot of times that I have an idea about joy, but joy is not a, an experience. It's not happiness. It's not a feeling. Joy is something that goes beyond circumstances. But in order for us to experience joy, I was looking at Psalm chapter 16 for, uh, this week in verse 7. And David writes this psalm and he expresses where joy comes from. When I was younger, I thought joy came from a new toy. I thought joy came from, you know, getting presents, you know. Uh, but in Psalm chapter 16, verse 7, David writes, he says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night season. I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, I've made him my priority because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. 
Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, in order for us to have joy, it must first start with us walking personally with Jesus, getting to know Him through what He said in His Word, through what He continues to want to speak into our lives, taking heed, listening closely, and then applying it. That's what David is writing about here, making him our first priority, letting him lead us in all that we do. And we saw last week that as Philip had taken heed to the teachings of Jesus, Jesus then gave him not only a message for him to apply to his own life, but then he gave him words to speak to those that didn't have that presence of God in their life. And as he did that, Philip got joy, and then many others received joy as a result. That's, it's kind of like an infection, but a good one. It, you, know, like you think about you know, kids going to school and being sick. You know, they're always willing to share when they have sickness, right? And, and it's the same when we don't have joy, when we're bitter, when we're angry about things. We're, we're quick to share that. If there's one thing that all of my coworkers and I can relate to, just in our little office, is somebody starts complaining. We all jump on the bandwagon because we know what it's like to complain. It's like, yeah, I know, that, you know, that really stinks can't believe it's so cold or hot or, you know, whatever the thing is. Oh, it's raining again. And how many times is it that we spend most of our time getting on the bandwagon of anger or bitterness or complaining? But as believers, we have hope beyond all that stuff. We have joy. Do you know that joy is not like happiness? Happiness is, uh, it's a feeling. It's, um, actually, I looked it up so I wouldn't just make something up on the fly. <laughs> um, I looked it up. Where is it here? Joy is happiness. We, joy is defined as cheerfulness, delight, and calm gladness. But if you think about that definition, you think, oh, well, that's just happiness. But the difference is, is that happiness, when it's those things, cheerfulness, delight, and calm gladness, if it's happiness, it can be robbed by the situation changing. But joy is having cheerfulness, delight, and calm gladness, even when something bad goes on. Even when the circumstances change and I no longer have a bonus this week because we did well at work. You know, even when I no longer have, you know, um, you know, even when something goes completely wrong in your life, maybe you run out of gas. You can still have joy when you run out of gas when it's not based on your circumstances. And so he's giving them joy, not because everything's all of a sudden better in their lives. He's giving them joy because they realize their sins are forgiven. So even if they die, even if the worst of the worst happens, they're going to heaven anyway. So who cares? You know, there was a gentleman that goes fishing with my father-in-law. And uh, they go every week and they both have heart problems. And so they go out to these lakes. And of course, there's no cell phone signal and they're both not doing so well health-wise. They're okay. But like, you know, at any point their heart could stop and people would be like, well, I, I could see that coming, you know. <laughs> they're, they're at that spot in life. And uh, one of them, not my father-in-law, um, he all of a sudden passed out while he was fishing. And his head hit the bottom of the boat. I mean, it was not like, a, you know, he fainted and went. He went down quick. And uh, they found out later that he has something called sudden death syndrome. I found out that that's, I didn't know that was a thing. I, you know, like... But all of a sudden his heart stopped and they can't explain why. 
So of course they're going to get them like a, a body jump box, you know, a pacemaker that basically senses if your heart stops and gets you going again. Um, but in that moment, what happened is he passed out. And later, of course, my wife is all upset because she's like, my dad would have jumped in and tried to save him. Had he fallen in the water, he would have died trying to get him out of the water. They both would have died. And so everybody's like, well, what, what would we do in that situation? I said, they're not going to wear life jackets. It's too hot and they're too cool for that. So tie a rope to their leg and tie a rope to the chair and just drag them back in. You know, I mean, that's the best you can do. Just, they're not going to wear life jackets. They're, you know, they're at that point. But my point is, the gentleman is still alive. But when he woke up after being slapped and pushed around until it kind of jolted him back to life again, God brought him back to life miraculously. But what he said was, Wayne, my father-in-law's name is Wayne. He said, you better not jump in after me because, yeah, it's a bummer that I fell in, but I'm going to be with Jesus. So even if I do die, I die doing what I love, fishing, and I'm going to be with Jesus. So don't, don't kill yourself over the thing. You know, it was my time. That's joy to me, knowing that I could die at any moment, but knowing at the same time that if I do, it's in God's hands. I read that in the Psalms this morning. My time is in God's hands. When my testimony is up, it's all done anyway. Nobody's going to be able to save me. So there's joy in that. Not because it's a great thing, because there's going to be lots of people sad that that person passes away, but also knowing that God's completely in control, and so when it's His time, it's His timing. That's joy. So as this is happening with Philip, and these people are being blessed with joy, with true joy in the Lord, um, realize that their joy came from Philip basically being scared out of Jerusalem because one of his friends, Stephen, another of the deacons that were chosen in Acts chapter 6, had been killed. But that didn't stop Philip. He went where God sent him by persecution. He ends up in Samaria to preach the gospel. So the stormy season produced, produced joy in his life and in many others. And Philip was producing fruit wherever he was planted by God. So as this is happening, Luke now, he's going to zoom in the text is going to zoom in on a personal interest story. And I like this because you can tell me about all the problems going on in the world, but I'm never really attached to it. But when I hear a specific person and what they're going through, all of a sudden my ears perk up. I want to know what I want to know more about this situation. Everybody likes a human interest story because we're human, right? So it zooms in in Acts chapter 8 verse 9 and says, "But a certain man, this is after all those in the city in Samaria had received Great joy because of their salvation. Verse 9 says, There was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. We don't have a lot of people around here doing that, do we? No, everybody proclaims that there's something great to everyone. I mean, it's just like what we do. Hey, I'm a big fan of me. You should be too. And so Simon, that's what his testimony was. That was him before Jesus. And it says, uh, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed. Notice that word again. They all gave heed to him. He said he was something great. They listened and they go, hey, he must be great, right? He said so. And as they gave heed, because he had, they gave heed because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip 
and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. So, so far, so good. You got this personal story about Simon. And Simon, um, he seems to be on the up and up. Seems that at one point in his life, for the majority of it, he's been a sorcerer. He dealt in magic. Now, we think of magic and we think, oh, it's just like David Copperfield, kind of drawing your attention away while he does something else, and kind of a, a sleight of hand. But there is a sorcery, there is a magic that has to do with more than just, it's witchcraft. He was a, a, a charlatan. He was doing these miraculous things and it was real. He was really doing these things. He had some sort of power and it was not the power of God. It was the power of Satan. It was the power of the enemy. It was a, a real spiritual thing going on. He had given himself over to the practice of sorcery and witchcraft. And many times they would make potions and they would deal in black magic. And, you know, it was like a cult kind of thing, except there was real power to it. And so it says there that before he had believed in the gospel of Jesus, what he would do is he would do these sorceries, these practices. It doesn't say exactly what he did. But because of them, people noticed and they, they listened to him. They, he was doing great things and eventually their testimony of him, we'll find out later, is that he was the great power of God. Verse 10 says that. Their testimony was that this man is the great power of God. Not that he has power from God, but that his power is God's power. So, they are... Um, so Philip is preaching the gospel, all these people are no longer listening to Simon. They don't want anything to do with him. And they start to listen to this testimony about Jesus. And his testimony about Jesus being God is confirmed by signs and wonders. But this man Simon, everything that he did was signs and wonders. It didn't follow his testimony of someone else. It was his own testimony about him. And so as they turn away from him, they no longer give him heed. They turn to Jesus and listen to the story about Jesus and, and Philip's preaching, um, they're, they're baptized. They say, I believe in Jesus. And the first step of faith is to be baptized. And so everyone's getting baptized that believes. And then Simon himself starts to believe. And then he is baptized. He makes a profession of faith. So it's important that we notice this man is now a believer. It's important because what we're going to see is he's going to have a struggle still, even though he's now a believer. He's been saved, but he's not perfect yet. Positionally, he's going to heaven, but practically, he's still got some things that God's trying to iron out of his life to get rid of some of the sinful, wrong ideas that he has about God. And so we'll look at that. Verse 14 says, When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to that area, who when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we have this thing going on where um, back in Acts chapter 1, we talked about the relationships that we can have with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. You have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God revealed in three different persons. Individual identities. And they all have different parts that they play in the Godhead. So, as we look at that, I wanted to refer back to Acts chapter 1, where basically we had spoken about the relationships that we can have with the Holy Spirit. 
The first relationship is described by the Greek word para. The word para actually means with. So, like, with. Okay, so Peter and John would pray over them that they would receive the Holy Spirit, but the first relationship that man has with God is by the Holy Spirit, and it's before you become a Christian. Before you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit was para, was with you. And he's that voice convicting you of sin and drawing you to Jesus Christ. Let me be clear, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He doesn't condemn us, he convicts us. So if we understand the difference between condemnation and conviction, condemnation says you're not good enough, God can't forgive you, you're too far gone, you may as well give up. Conviction says, hey, yes, you have sin going on and you need to deal with it, but you need to deal with it by confessing it to God, just just own up to it, and then receive Jesus' forgiveness. He will forgive you, but you have to confess. And so that's the difference between conviction and condemnation. The world, many times, from Christians, doesn't receive conviction. They receive condemnation. We basically point the finger at them and say, you're not good enough. And sometimes we don't even say that. We act like that. We won't associate with them. We won't be around them. We say, hey, you're not worthy of my time. But not Jesus. Jesus was known as being with sinners, not condoning what they were doing, but telling them, you can be freed from this. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to be in bondage to sin anymore. And so Jesus forgives sin, but first the Holy Spirit convicts us that we have sin. If you're not convicted that you have sin, you won't look for a Savior. You won't look for a way to be saved. So then there's a second relationship that the Holy Spirit has with us, described using the Greek word en, E-N. And it just means in you. And in John chapter 14, Jesus actually speaks of this relationship. Should have marked the page. John 14. All the way around it. John 14 verse um, 17 says, Oh, yeah, it says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's, he's a him. I almost said it myself. He's, he neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, speaking to the disciples, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So that word with, para, and then that word in. He will be in you. He will dwell in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But there's this third relationship that he's speaking of here when he says that the apostles prayed over them that the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. And that idea is in the Greek word epi, E-P-I. And that word means to come upon. And the idea is to empower believers to be bold witnesses, to give testimony to the work of Jesus Christ in their lives, to listen to what people have to say. And when God gives the opportunity to testify, hey, God can save you from that. Or to just share the testimony of what God has done. He gives meaning to come upon in this word epi. And this, this is the relationship where the Holy Spirit not only is in you, but overflows you. Paul writes in his epistle, speaking of believers, and he basically calls us crackpots or cracked vessels. In this earth, our job is, is not to be anything but to be filled with Him. 
And so we're basically like a cup. And then that cup is made out of clay because it's made out of dirt, like we were in Genesis. So that earthen vessel, that clay vessel, it's broken. Sin has marred it. But what the enemy means for bad, that sin, that thing that's tainted us and broken us, when God's glory is poured into us, it shines through our cracks. And so the Holy Spirit is in us, but then he overflows from us. He springs forth like a well. And so the idea is, is that we would overflow into other people's lives because of our relationship with the Lord. But he always tells us in Scripture, when he talks about us being filled with the Holy Spirit, he desires that we ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the key. If you want to be have an overflowing life like Philip did, you've got to ask the Lord to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And I, I get that idea from Luke chapter 11, verse 9. Where Jesus tells his disciples, he says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks his dad for bread, from excuse me, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? The answer is no. That's a rhetorical question. Obviously, no. Verse 13 then says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that's the idea. Asking, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Make me a witness for you. Help me not to be a complete bumbler when it comes to walking with you when I'm with my coworkers, you know? And one of the ways he overflows through me is he just shuts me up. He tames my tongue, helps me not to get involved in conversation I don't need to be in, you know? I say stupid stuff. You guys know that. You listen to me every week. I say stupid things, and so the Lord wants to tame my tongue. And James says, no man can tame the tongue, only the Lord can. It's a, it's a, a fire just waiting to set the woods on fire. It just starts all kinds of problems. And so the Lord has to tame our tongues. So the Lord wants us to be overflowing with his Holy Spirit. So as the apostles lay their hands on and pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon these new believers, here's the point of him telling all this. Simon then looks at this situation, sees him laying on hands, sees these apostles praying for them, and then notices something happen, notices something that takes place, and he wants that. So in verse 14, it says, well, was it verse 14? No, verse 18. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he then offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't a bad want. He, this isn't a bad want. He wants to be able to pray for people that they would receive the Holy Spirit. He wants to do something good, but he wants to do it in a way that God does not prescribe. We oftentimes think we can approach God in any way that we want, with our own ideas about how he acts and what he does and how we should act with him, how we should worship him. But you'll notice here that the apostles are going to rebuke him. They're going to rebuke him strongly. Verse, 9, uh, verse 20, Peter said to him, your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. 
You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. He says, repent, which is a word that means turn around. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. He's revealing to him, there's something wrong in your heart, Simon. You're, you're trying to approach God in a way that's not right, and it's because you have iniquity bound up in you. You're bound by iniquity. You have bitterness. You're poisoned with it. You have something in your life that hasn't been dealt with yet, Simon. And I want to deal with it, but you're going to have to repent. You're going to have to realize that what you've just wrong, done is not okay. So he approaches him very boldly. And this, but what I want to point out is this is the first instance where we see in the early church someone's trying to buy a position of power in the church. But notice that the church at this point is still pure enough to resist the temptation. They resisted. They said, hey, you, we don't want your money. They could have very easily, if they had the wrong motive, said, hey, we'd love to have a couple extra bucks. We're kind of poor. We've been preaching the gospel for a living. But they say, no, your money perish with you. You can't buy God's favor. You can't earn anything by giving what the world considers to be valuable. And so he tells them, we don't want your money. Motives are everything. All throughout scripture, God's talking to his people saying, hey, check your motives. You're not right in this situation. Saul was one of the, he was the first king of Israel. And he was doing what the Lord told him to do. He was going in and he was taking these lands and he was conquering them. But the Lord had told him, I want you to go into these lands. I want you to conquer them. I want you to get rid of all the junk that they have. Burn it, get rid of it. Because some of those things are going to be a stumbling block to you. And so what did he do? He went in, he ransacked these places. He got rid of these civilizations he did everything except obey what God had told him. Get rid of, utterly destroy everything in these towns, these cities. But what did he do? He decided that he was going to keep back some of the lambs, some of the animals, some of the herds. Because, I mean, obviously you'd have extra food. You'd be able to have extra resources. They used the, the sheep's wool and everything for clothing. But when Samuel, the prophet of God, found out what Saul had done... He said, what have you done? He said, well, I, I did all that God told me to do. He said, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep and lambs? Why do I hear them calling out? Because they were supposed to destroy those animals. That was supposed to, that's what God told him to do. It doesn't matter if he understood it or agreed with it. God told him to get rid of those animals. And because he didn't, Samuel said, basically, you know, he said, do you not understand that you've basically rebelled against God's command? To obey God is better than sacrifice because Saul gave a reason for why he kept that. He goes, well, uh, and he sounded very spiritual. He goes, well, I was going to save those sheep so we can make sacrifices, burn offerings to God. I was going to use them for God. It doesn't matter. God told him to get rid of them. I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to be obedient. Many times we think that rather than being obedient to God, we can make some sort of sacrifice. We can serve more. We can read more. We can give to charity. But oftentimes God doesn't want any of that. He would rather us just be obedient. Be obedient to what I've shown you today. Don't try to earn my favor. You can't do it anyway. Just be obedient. And so in this situation, you've got Simon. He's trying to earn God's favor. He wants to buy this gift so he can be used. And God says basically through Peter, you can't buy the gifts of God. God gives gifts 
based on what he sees as important. So they correct Simon. And sometimes we come to God with ideas about him, how we can worship him, how we can serve him, based on our own ideas. Because what I want you to notice is that Simon is asking to purchase this gift, this trick, this way of serving God. He's wanting to purchase it because in his former life, when he was doing sorcery and magic, when people noticed that he was something great, they would come to him and say, hey, we want to pay you so that we can do what you do. We see what you have, Simon, and we want it. So here's some money. Will you give it to us? And he would. So he sees these apostles that he, he admires them. He sees Philip. He sees them praying over some people and giving them the Holy Spirit. And he sees the change. He wants to be a part of that. And so he approaches them and he says, Hey, I want, it, I want what you have. I want to be able to do what you do. Here's some money. And they say, hey, get away from us with that. You don't need money to serve God. God's going to equip you if he wants to use you that way. You can't purchase it. And so what I want to point out is that he's approaching God. He's trying to get the gifts of God the way he had always known. This is all he'd ever known. If you want to be able to do something, you pay for it. And God's saying, you can't pay for it. I just, if I'm going to use you that way, I'll give you that. And so... What I want to point out is that the principle here is many times we have wrong ideas about God. Maybe we've only been saved for a couple years, maybe just a few months. Or maybe you got saved 20 years ago, but you still have wrong ideas about what God desires from you, how He wants you to serve. Maybe you have wrong ideas about how it is we worship God. What He wants to do to us, He wants to erase all the preconceived ideas about what we think of Him. And He wants to use His Word to teach us what he has to say about worshiping him. Simon wasn't there yet. He hadn't been walking with the Lord long enough to see that. So these men loved him enough. They were in fellowship with him. They loved him enough to correct him. It didn't mean he wasn't saved anymore. It just meant that he had some growing to do. And I got to tell you, when I surround myself, when I'm with other believers and they tell me something, oftentimes my first response is not to go, oh, okay. I guess I'll turn around. I'll change my ways. My first response is, you don't know me. You don't know my heart. You know, uh, Simon very easily could have said to these men here, hey, you don't really know my heart. You say that I'm bound up in iniquity. I'm fine. You don't know me. But instead, notice his response. After having said to him in verse 23, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me. Pray for me. If this is the case, then I need to change. Please pray for me because I can't change on my own. I've been doing this too long. I'm kind of stuck in a rut. I know that I need to change. I recognize that. I want to do it. But pray for me. Pray that God would give me the ability to do that because, you know, I've been conformed to this world for too long. Romans chapter 12 actually says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be bent into the shape of people in this world. Don't look like the world. He says, instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's the reason. That you may prove what is that good, that acceptable, the perfect will of God. See, the whole world will see Jesus through your life when you're conformed to his image instead of the ways of this world. But for me, I don't know about you guys, I have been a non-Christian way longer than I've ever been a Christian. So I'm kind of in a a pattern, and patterns are hard to get out of. I was in marching band for a long time. We would learn music, 
and they said, you have to play something correctly way more times than you've ever played it incorrectly before you'll get out of the habit, the autopilot. And many times as Christians, we don't try to follow God's way because we're on autopilot. We're just doing it. Why are you doing it that way? Because we always have. Have you guys ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? There's this musical. I'm not a musical guy, don't get me wrong. But I saw this musical one time, and it was Fiddler on the Roof. And this Jewish man, they were getting ready to go and find a spouse for his daughter or son. I don't remember. But basically, the, the child was like, well, why do we have to do things this way? Why, are we, why do we do the, these things this way? There's no reason. It doesn't seem like there's really any reason why we do it. And the dad goes, I don't know. Tradition! And that's like the whole song. He's, he, I don't really have a reason. It's just what we've always done. And we live our lives after being saved as if we could just continue to do things the way we've always done them. But God wants more for us. He wants to use us His way. Because when we use, are used by Him His way, we don't get any glory and He does. So, verse 25, and we'll close. So when the apostles had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. The apostles, after having prayed for those who believed that they would receive the Holy Spirit, they did that, and then taking some time to set this new believer named Simon straight, they corrected him. Their work was done, and they moved on. Uh, they departed, they headed back to Jerusalem, and as they went, everywhere that they went, they preached the gospel. Maybe God's got you in a transition period in your life right now. Maybe you're not doing what you think that you're supposed to be doing. Maybe you're in school. You're not doing your job yet. So you're like, well, I, I can just use this time, however. But what the apostles, what the disciples of Jesus are always doing is they're sharing the gospel on the way to things. They, in the process of moving to the next step in life, that's what they're doing. They're sharing Jesus with people. So that's kind of their lifestyle. That's what they're doing. But this life is a process. It's a, it's a journey, not a destination. You probably read that on some sort of inspirational post somewhere. Life is a, a journey, not a destination. And many times we, we're always working to arrive somewhere. But God, His arrival point for us is heaven. So once we get there, then we've arrived. But until we're face to face with Jesus, we're going to have to constantly let God change us from glory to glory. And this is how He does it. He uses believers. He uses fellowship. And sometimes He uses just everyday circumstances that we think are normal. And he uses us in the lives of others and others in the lives of us. That's why I always encourage people, if there's an opportunity for fellowship with other believers, get there, be there, cancel whatever else. I've spent the last eight years of my life doing that and I've always been blessed even when I, I really needed to mow the grass. God's going to use each and every conversation to change us, to be conformed into his image. And as we are, he will give us, just like he did the people in Samaria, he will give us great joy. We'll be in His presence. We'll have fullness of joy. So let's pray. Father, thank You so much um, for the way that You desire not only to save us, but once we're saved, You're so patient with us. You see that there's lots of things that aren't lined up yet, but You uh, are willing to work with us and to change the things that are wrong. You don't cast us out because we don't get it all right away. Um, you're willing to deal with each and every detail as they come up. And so... Father, thank you for being a good father. Thank you for being a good enough father to be willing to give up your own son for our salvation. 
Father, change us. Help us not to be conformed to the ways of this world. Help us to look different, not just by wearing different clothes or saying different things, but Lord, make us like your son Jesus. Conform us to his image. Submit us to your will. And Lord, as we do that, give us joy. Help us to find that the purpose that you've given us before we were ever born will give us more joy than whatever it is we think is more important. Father, uh, thank you for your love. Thank you for the time this morning. I pray you bless each family that's here. Uh, Protect them, guide them, provide for them. Uh, Lord, bless them. Give them time, opportunities. Help them to have a desire to have individual time with you um, so that not only would the rest of the world be blessed, their co-workers and those uh, types of people, but so that their families would be blessed. Help us to be a blessing to our families and, and our households. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.